Okay? You good? <coughs> Let's go to the Lord in prayer one more time. Father, we thank you this morning for the privilege that we have of coming together in this way to listen to your word preached to us, to have your word infiltrate our hearts and minds, and by your grace to have your word shape our lives. We pray this morning you may grant grace to the speaker and hearers alike, that you may indeed guide the lips that preach and the ears that hear, and that together our hearts may receive your word, committed to serve you and obey you as you grow daily more and more into the image of your Son who loved us and who gave himself for us. We ask this in his name and for his sake alone. Amen. This morning we are back in Colossians and we're starting a, a new section of Colossians which starts in the first chapter, the end of the first chapter, and uh, in finishes in the first verse of the second chapter. So if you can open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. We'll read from verse 24 down to the beginning of chapter 2. Colossians 1, reading from verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toiled, struggling with all, this, with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all, to te- to reach all the riches of fullness, of understanding, and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. May God bless us the reading of his word as we uh, consider some thoughts here this morning. I've read this entire portion because this is the next pericope in Paul's to the Colossians. We're not going to preach this, of course. We're going to start very slowly at the beginning, but I've read it so that we can get a sense of where we are going. So we've moved out of the section that extols the supremacy of Christ. We've spent some time on that, and we saw the supremacy of Christ in relation to creation as the firstborn of all creation. We also saw the supremacy of Christ in relation to the church as the firstborn from the dead. And the preceding pericope ends in verse 23 with the statement about being a servant. Paul's statement about being a servant of the gospel 
that is to be preached throughout the known world. So Paul ends that section and starts a new section where he starts speaking about himself. And so we see as we go through Colossians, Paul does this. Usually the, the closing words or section of the last verse opens up a new thought or a new uh, development of his letter to this church. And this has to happen here, and we've seen that. And Paul transitions seamlessly from verse 23 to, to verse 24 when he starts the section dealing with his ministry to the church as a servant of the gospel. And that's what we're going to be considering over the next few sermons. And this morning our focus is going to be only verse 24. We need to take time with this verse. We need to spend time with this verse. Because this verse has caused problems and we need to see if we can make sure we understand it clearly. It's commonly cited by most um, commentators as being the most controversial verse in Colossians. And you will see why when we go through some of its points. We'll focus primarily on this verse this morning. And it will be valuable to look at some of the subordinate aspects before we deal with the main thought in this verse. So this verse has presented problems, and it's, it's really uh, been a debate for many years. Um, some thought about what this man changed around 1950, um, and in more recent times has been another way of looking at this verse. But we want to see this morning what we can understand from God's Word, what this says, and how it applies to Paul in his ministry. Colossians 1.24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church. There's some things in this verse I want to deal with now, which are already subordinate to the main thought, and then we're going to deal with the main thought for the rest of the sermon. Paul uses the phrase in this verse, in my flesh. And all he's saying there, it's another way of saying, in my physical body. So we can read the first part of this verse thus. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my physical body, I'm filling up what is lacking. That is important, and it may not be significant now, but as we get through this verse, you see why that is important. Without unpacking the entire verse, we already know that whatever Paul is doing in this verse is being done in relation to his physical body. The next subordinate phrase in this, in, in this verse is, for the sake of his body, that is the church. And this phrase refers to the universal body of Christ or the invisible body, that is the universal church. And so we have this phrase which again is subordinate but it's important to recognize because this phrase is going to open up the door to the rest of this section as Paul gets more and more into teaching the church directly after having built up a strong theological and doctrinal base in the opening verse of chapter 1. There's another phrase in this, in this verse, for your sake, which is part of the main thought, but should be also clarified here. That phrase, for the sake of his readers, that is the Colossian church. That's, what it's, that, that's who he's referring to when he says, for the sake of. So if you put them all together, we can read this verse as follows. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for the sake of you, the Colossian church, and in my physical body, and for the sake of the universal body of Christ, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. That is just a, re a paraphrase of that verse so we can see who he's referring to and when he speaks about my body and Christ's body, what those refer to. And we try to make that clear. So what is the main thought? When we, when we strip out all the subordinate thoughts, what's the main thought? What is Paul saying right here? And this is the main thought. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake 
and I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. And we look at four things, there are four uh, sections in this verse which we're going to try and unpack this morning. Number one, the affliction of Christ, what is Paul referring to? Number two, the suffering of Paul, how is that significant? What is the meaning of the filling up? And that has caused tremendous concern because this verse seems to be saying, and we can repeat this later on, that Paul is doing something that needs to be added to what Christ has done. So we need to get to what that actually means. And finally, we're going to speak about Paul's joy in all of this. So, let's start with the first section, the affliction of Christ. When we see the word affliction used in connection with Christ, we almost instinctively think of Isaiah 53 verse 4. We go there because in the English uh, text, in the English uh, translation and versions, we see affliction and we think immediately of a very well-known Old Testament verse where that appears. And that verse says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. In that same chapter, in verse 7, we see that word appears again. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. When we think of the fiction of Jehovah's servant as recorded in Isaiah 53, we transport us in ourselves in our own minds to the event the prophet was predicting, which is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, together with the horrendous agony inflicted on him. That's where our minds go when we hear that word afflicted, and especially when we take our minds to, to Isaiah 53, we then almost think of, 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 of Calvary, because that's what he is predicting. And when some read Colossians 1 verse 24, there's a tendency to link that affliction of Christ in 1 24 of Colossians with the crucifixion. And the moment we create that connection, we introduce an element of confusion that gives this verse its reputation of being the most difficult verse in the entire epistle. It's that connection that gives the confusion as what does this really mean. And we feel uncomfortable when we read that Paul had to fill up something that was lacking in the work of Christ. It's an uncomfortable feeling, and rightly so. But Paul has written this, and we have to understand what he's writing. We cannot understand what this verse means until we understand what the fiction of Christ, as it, is, as it is used in Colossians, means. The original Greek word interpreted affliction here in the ESV is translated in the same way in the NIV, the NASB, the, N, the New King James. If you're using any of those Bibles, you will see the word affliction used in 1 Colossians chapter, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. The Dead Bible, however, translates the original Greek word as suffering. And this helps to bring the idea of the suffering of Christ and the suffering of Paul into a clearer perspective. So right away, now that we don't see the word affliction, we see suffering, and Paul is talking about suffering about himself, we start getting ourselves onto a balanced footing. It helps put them in the same context as I hope to show you further in the sermon. There are three aspects of Christ's suffering we have to consider. So when it speaks about Christ's affliction and Christ's suffering, we have to, get, we have to grapple with that and come away from this verse understanding what is Paul speaking about. What, in what sense is he speaking about the suffering of Christ? As we try to understand this, we have to understand what Paul says about the affliction in verse 24. So, just speaking about the suffering of Christ as an aspect of, of his work, let's think of this firstly. Number one, there's a suffering nature of the atonement. 
We know that Christ suffered when he atoned for sin. The most common way we think about the suffering of Christ is the suffering he endured in order to atone for sin. That is what we commonly think when we speak about the suffering of Christ and his affliction. A significant part of Isaiah 53 deals with atonement, which is why we think of this passage first because of how the prophet depicts the suffering or the affliction of the one who was pierced for our transgressions, who was crushed for our iniquities, upon whom was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with whose wounds we are healed. The account of the horrendous agony experienced by Jehovah's suffering servant, predicted so accurately by Isaiah, has become familiar to most of us. And so we very often think that this is the only way he suffered. But this is a mistake. When we read and understand what 1 Colossians, sorry, Colossians 1, verse 24 says. The suffering of Christ in Colossians 1.24 is not connected to the suffering endured when he died for sin. I'm going to say that again, and I need to, and I need to prove this to you later on. The suffering of Christ in Colossians 1.24 is not connected to the suffering endured when he died for sin. It's not that connection. There are at least two aspects of verse 24 that makes this clear. Number one, the vocabulary. The word translated in the ESV by the English word affliction it's also used about 45 times in the New Testament. So it's not used here only, it's used elsewhere in the New Testament. And in these 45 occurrences elsewhere in the New Testament, and used of, every, of people other than Christ, in almost every, in every case, the original word is translated by another different word. A word closely connected to the English word affliction. In Matthew and Mark, it's translated tribulation. In Acts, it's translated persecution. In Romans, it's translated suffering. In, in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians and Philippians, it's translated trouble or troubles. In 1 Thessalonians, it's translated distress. So there's a huge range of words which all express discomfort at different levels. And depending on the context in which the, the author writing, they choose words that speak up to that context. And while all these words are, express, are expressions of affliction, in none of these contexts, do they equate with the suffering recorded in Isaiah 53? They are used differently to the way, uh, to the way it's used in Isaiah 53, and, it's, and indeed the way it's used in, uh, about Christ's suffering. Further, we see that Colossians 1.24 is the only time that this word, this Greek form of this word, is used in connection with Christ. And it's never used in the reference to his suffering for the atonement of sin. It's used only once, and, and it's not used for that. So besides the vocabulary, there's also a theological reason why we cannot equate Colossians 1.24 with the atonement or the suffering for redemption. It's clear that from, from 1 Colossians, <laughs> from the verse we are, we, are, we are considering this morning, that whatever the fiction of Christ is, this is important, whatever the fiction of Christ is, it was lacking in some way. And Paul's ministry was in some way filling up this lack. He says this, In my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. And when misunderstood, this clause seems to be saying, In my flesh, that's in I, that is I poured in my own body, I am filling up and some are bringing to completion what is lacking, a deficiency that's present in Christ's affliction, in the way Christ suffered to provide redemption. 
And by simply saying it aloud in that way, I, Paul in my own body, am somehow bringing to completion a deficiency present in the way Christ suffered to provide the redemption, immediately raises theological red flags in our mind. Because it cannot be saying that. We instinctively know that this cannot be what this verse means. So we know it cannot mean that. So it must therefore mean something else. We know this because Paul teaches elsewhere in this very epistle the opposite. In Colossians 1 verse 19, he teaches this, For in him, that's in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So the blood of his cross was exclusive work whereby Christ finished that which we came to do. He paid for sin, he assuaged God's wrath, he drank the cup of wrath on our behalf, he paid for sin, and nobody had to do anything to assist him in doing that because he was not efficient in any way in procuring salvation. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, which we will get to eventually, and Paul says, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by cancelling the record of debt, and stood against us with his legal demands, this is set aside, nailing it to the cross. So again, it's clear from, from that verse that the work of Christ was accomplished fully and completely on the cross of Calvary, requiring no one to help him to fill up anything or to complete anything that was left undone. And Paul clearly shows in Colossians that there is nothing lacking in the work of redemption or accomplished by Christ while undergoing unspeakable suffering and affliction. That we understand and we see that in Scripture. And the very thought that Paul, a self-confessed sinner, could in any way be required to supplement the atoning work of Jesus Christ is heretical in every way. It's inconceivable. So if it doesn't say that, what does it say? Therefore, whatever we understand Colossians 1.24 to mean, that understanding cannot include any deficiency in the atonement. In other words, the fiction of Christ in Colossians 1.24 cannot and doesn't have the cross work of Christ in view. There's another way that Christ suffered, and the word suffering and affliction doesn't appear in this passage, but I think that the context is one of suffering. Number two, the suffering nature of his temptation. While the words affliction and suffering do not appear in the accounts of the temptation of Jesus in both Matthew's account and Luke's account, this is without a doubt, without doubt, a time of suffering for him. Having gone through 40 days without any bread, and then he is, is repeatedly tempted by Satan. It's a time of suffering for Christ. This time of suffering was something that could be endured by Christ and Christ alone. In fact, he was driven into the world by the Holy Spirit to endure. It was something he did in solitary, in a solitary way. It was only he that could do it. He did not succumb to temptation because by his very nature he could not sin. And therefore could not be tempted. And that was why he was in the wilderness. No being whether human or angelic, could help him during this time. In fact, the angels came to minister to him only after he had dismissed Satan in defeat. So there is a sense of suffering of, for Christ, of, um, that Christ suffers in his 40 days. It's not mentioned there, but I, I raise a point in case someone may say in their mind afterwards, well, what about the suffering of Christ in, in, the, in, 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 the, in the wilderness? It, it's just uh, one of those aspects, and it doesn't pertain to this verse, but we will address it nonetheless. And because of the very purpose of this, of, of, of this temptation, 
Paul could have no role to play in the unique event in the life of Christ. It was a unique event for Christ alone, by himself, and only he could go through that temptation with his, with his, with his concomitant suffering, and we know that was for a specific purpose. Any suffering that Christ endured during the temptation has no relation to the affliction of Christ in Colossians 1 verse 24. So now we've put aside the two areas where he has suffered and which we said is not what we're speaking about this morning. So we've spoken about something we're not going to be speaking about. Now we'll speak about what we are supposed to be speaking about. Number three, the suffering nature of his earthly ministry. At the age of 30, Jesus steps out of the obscurity of Nazareth. You remember the place Nazareth? That someone said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Now, I said that this verse doesn't refer to Isaiah 53, but really the beginning of Isaiah 53, those first three verses, if you read that, it gives you a clear picture of how, how Jesus was when he grew up in obscurity, um, not, not, um, not famous, um, almost someone you could look over. But he came from obscurity in Nazareth, and he steps into his public ministry on the banks of the Jordan River. And on the banks of the Jordan River, John is baptizing, and he predicts and he, that, that, that they, they will see the one who is coming, whose shoe latches he cannot, uh, he cannot uh, tie. And when Jesus Christ arrives on the, Jordan, on the banks of the Jordan, John says, Behold the Lamb of God who bears away the sin of the world. The time had arrived for him to minister to the house of Israel. This was his people, and he came to bring them salvation. Paul picks up the sword in Romans chapter 15 when he says this in verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. He came as Messiah to his own. Matthew chapter 10 verse 5. He says this to the twelve uh, in connection with ministering. And, 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 and preaching the kingdom message to the people of Israel. These twelve Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you are going, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the reason I'm touching these points is because this is going to tie into what the suffering of Christ means that Paul highlights in Colossians chapter 1. This was Christ's singular focus, to present himself as Messiah to the house of Israel. In Matthew chapter 15, a woman, a Gentile woman, comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, a Syrah, the Syrophoenician woman, and her daughter is demon-possessed. And she comes to Jesus as a Gentile and says to him, and asks him and begs of him to free her from the demon possession, and Jesus doesn't answer her. The disciples say, do something, let this woman go away, I'm paraphrasing. And then Jesus answers the disciples. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The house of Israel should have recognized him as Messiah, he was sent to them. And they should have received him as Messiah, because they had always been prepared for this. The history of this nation should prepare it for the moment. Paul says this about them in Romans chapter 9. They are Israelites, and Paul is speaking about them. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. 
To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. They should have recognized him, they should have received him, because he came to them and for them. This was his people. But instead of receiving Messiah, they rejected him. They refused to believe in him. And in fact, John chapter 1 verse 11 says so eloquently, he came to his own, to his own things, that which was his own. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Even after seeing the many miraculous signs, even after they heard him teach as no man had taught before, they still would not believe him. He fed them, he healed them, he performed miracles, he raised the dead, he fed thousands, he stole the, 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 the wind and the waves, and for all the signs he did, they remained stiff-necked, hard-hearted, and refused to receive and believe. John chapter 12, verse 37 says this, Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him. But not only did they reject him, they hated him. And that is at the core of Paul's account in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, when he says, Christ suffered. They hated him for, for he was, the hate of him was intense and was completely unwarranted. John says this in chapter 15 of his gospel. And this is Jesus speaking. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in the law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. That was at the heart of the suffering that he experienced when he, when he walked in, the, uh, in, in Israel for three years in his public ministry. The hatred for him was at the heart of all that it did to him and made his work as hard as it could. For three years, Jesus ministered to the nation of Israel, but the rejection was endless. He's re he was rejected by his own family. He was rejected by the ordinary people. He was especially rejected and persecuted by the Jewish leaders who knew the law and knew all the counts of the Messiah. He's ultimately betrayed and rejected by Judas, one of the twelve. So even in the innermost circle, the men that surrounded him for three years, there were those who did not ultimately believe and rejected. The ministry of Jesus was marked by suffering and affliction. And finally, the hard-hearted rejection, hard rejection drove him to grieve as he pours out his sorrow over the city that had the opportunity to recognize him as the promised Messiah, but rejected him. He grieved over their hard-heartedness. He grieved over their stiff-neckedness. Luke chapter 19 says this, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Who that you, you that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a, tab, up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And the time of their visitation was when he walked amongst them, displaying to them everything that they needed to know about God 
that they had not already received from the law, from the prophets, and from the Psalms. They received all this in the scriptures and the prophets, and in their own lifetime, they had seen God before them. Jesus said, and we said this before, when you see Jesus, you see the Father. He is the express representation of Him. In Him, the fullness of the Godhead dwell bodily. And so we've seen that Colossians 1.24 does not refer to the suffering of Christ on the cross. We've also seen that Colossians 1.24 does not refer to his suffering in the wilderness when he was tempted. The only aspect that it could be referring to is the suffering experience during his three years of public ministry to Israel. And Paul draws attention to the Colossian believers, or draws their attention to the suffering of Christ that, they, that he experienced. He experiences this during his earthly ministry to the Jewish nation. A ministry that was relatively short and confined to Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. So the Lord Jesus Christ burst upon the scene, not known before to be who he was. Even John did not initially recognize him. And for three years, one-tenth of the life he lived before, he moves up and down from Judea to Samaria to Galilee and back in the Jordan Valley, preaching the kingdom to the nation of Israel, the house of Israel, the ones to whom he came, his people to whom he came. But the gospel that Christ preached to the Jews as a servant to the circumcised was never intended to be confined to the Jews only. It was intended to ultimately reach the Gentiles also, and that's clear from Scripture. So earlier I, I quoted from Romans 15 verse 8. Let me complete that by adding verse 9. Uh, to that uh, quotation, Romans 15 verse 8 says this, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that's to the Jews, the house of Israel, to show God's truthfulness, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. So it's always God's intention to ultimately include the Gentiles in His plan of redemption, but it had to go by way of the Jewish nation first. And there was a separation between the Old Testament chosen people of God and the people of God who become these New Testament people, two separate groups of people, both saved by grace uh, and by faith, but we see that this was always part of God's plan. And so this thought that that the redemption was for both Israel and for the Gentiles brings us close to understanding the suffering of Paul. So let's turn back to the main thought, just to refresh our memories while we're speaking about. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Paul expresses parallel thoughts here. He speaks about Christ's suffering. He speaks about his suffering. Christ suffered, that is, experienced physical persecution in his short ministry to the Jews. Paul suffered... That is experienced physical persecution in his extensive ministry to the Gentiles. I'll some more on this point a little later on. We know from Romans 11.13 that Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. He says that to the Roman church. He says, Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. So from Scripture it's clear who Paul was sent and commissioned to preach and commissioned to reach. It was the Gentile nations. And he did that. We will see in a phenomenal way. And Christ's commission and ministry was to the, was to the, uh, the house of Israel so that they could be uh, redeemed and recognize him as the Messiah and find salvation. 
And just as the ministry of Christ was with suffering, Paul's ministry was also fraught with suffering. So here's the parallel that Paul is drawing together in, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Turn to 2 Corinthians 11, verse 20. I want you to read this with me to get a sense of what Paul suffered, the suffering that he endured in his physical body, and which he references at least in part in Colossians 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 22. And he's addressing a challenge to the church where they were placing um, emphasis on men that Paul called super apostles. And now he's going to speak about himself, why he is more qualified to be the one to teach them and to whom, and whom they should be listening to. And he says about these other super apostles, are the Hebrews? So am I. Are the Israelites? So am I. Are the offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are the servants of Christ? I am better one. And then he catches himself with this really astounding phrase. I'm talking like a madman. He realizes what he's doing, and maybe misconstrued, but what he's saying is true about himself. He says this about himself. He has labored with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, Danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from these things, there is the daily pressure on me of my private, of my anxiety for all the churches. That was, as far as Paul could explain it in detail, the sufferings he endured when he ministered to the Gentiles in the same way that Christ was called to minister to the house of Israel. And Christ went through suffering, we know, we've just gone through that, how he suffered at the hands of his people. And Paul went through sufferings in the same way, but not to the same extent. Paul's outreach mission to the Gentile world was a phenomenal feat. He covered a distance of over 16,000 kilometers and much of that was on foot. This took him from Jerusalem, along the southern and western coast of Asia, through Greece from north to south, and finally all the way to Rome. They covered, this journey covered almost the entire length of the Mediterranean Sea, now called that, then called the Great Sea. He covered this distance over a period of 14 years, a 14-year missionary outreach program. <clears throat> He planted numerous churches in the cities he evangelized. This was an unbelievable achievement for anyone traveling under the mid-first century conditions. Paul did this against all odds. It was no easy feat. And without the help and the power and the work of the Spirit of God in his life, he would not have achieved this. We know that because many times he tells us how he had to respond to that and even change his mind from going in places where it was possibly too dangerous for him to go to. 
But Paul was committed to take up the work where his Lord and Master had left off. And this work was accompanied by repeated occasions of suffering and hardship, as we read in the Second Corinthians account. The parallel Paul draws between the suffering of Christ because of his mission to Israel and his own suffering because of his mission to the Gentiles is the subject matter of Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. The only difference being that Paul traveled further and for a longer period of time than Christ did. So what Paul did was of greater time and encompassed greater distance than that which Christ did. This is in keeping with what Jesus teaches to his disciples in John chapter 14. Through truth I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. That's not the miraculous works that Jesus did, because they could never do, even though they did perform miracles, the apostles were able to do signs and wonders to authenticate the ministry. But Jesus, ultimately, is the only one who could perform the miracles that he did. So when he says you will do the works I do, it's not the miraculous works that he did. He says the greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. So what does he mean? In which way are they going to do greater things than he, their master, did? Well, we have this one example we all know about Pentecost. Jesus preached and Jesus taught and some were saved. But on the day of Pentecost, those who were saved... Because of his preaching and teaching, and because of his death on Calvary, they preached. And 3,000 souls are saved and baptized on one day. We don't read that account happening in the life of Jesus. He preached to 5,000, and he preached to 4,000, and he fed them. But on one day, those who were the disciples of Jesus preached, and thousands were saved and baptized. And this is a sense which Paul speaks about his missionary work, as being something which fills up, which was, that was lacking in the ministry and mission work of Jesus. Paul's extensive mission work to the people and places that Jesus never went to is in exactly in keeping with what Christ says to his disciples in John 14. Jesus' focus was the people of Israel, in the land of Israel, for about 13 years. Paul's focus was the rest of the Roman Empire over a period of 14 years. Which brings clarity to the phrase that Paul uses in verse 24, the filling up. What does this filling up mean? What did Paul mean when he said that he is filling up the lack in Christ's afflictions? Paul completed the spreading of the good news that Jesus started. Jesus started the good news and then he went to his father. After three years of ministry and after his death and his resurrection eventually ascends and goes to the Father, and he leaves behind a church that is built up of fallible, sinful, redeemed people. Sinners, but now redeemed. Many have been blind and now could see. He leaves behind these people who have been saved, who are now the church, to continue the work that he had started and do it to a greater extent. He filled up, it's Paul, where Jesus could not because Jesus went to the Father. And the filling up of the extent of the missionary work was accompanied by a filling up of the inevitable suffering that accompanied that work. So as Paul went about the entire Roman Empire, preaching and teaching, planting churches, of which he, probably in excess of 20 churches, because the churches he planted, planted other churches. 
responsible for the planting of all the churches in Europe and Asia, and we find that during all of that, it was accompanied by sufferings that we read about in 2 Corinthians. And so these went together. Mission work to a group of people and suffering that accompanied that, that mission work. Jesus Christ we saw as the, as the Messiah preached for three years, missioned for three years, and suffered for three years to a certain extent. Paul does, takes up that commission, and he preaches and teaches for 14, over 14 years over a, uh, over a distance of 16,000 kilometers to numerous people, numerous churches, and his suffering during that time, as we read, is uh, commensurately uh, greater. The filling up that he's doing, as recorded in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, was he was continuing, and to him was being added the sufferings that Christ experienced. And so we end up, really, by looking at where Paul starts this verse, Paul's joy. What is he speaking about? We end that sermon where Paul starts when he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. It would be good to pause and think under what conditions Paul writes these words. We've gone this way before, but let us remind ourselves. Paul is in prison. Paul is under the guard of a Roman soldier. We know that this is, is, is the lighter of the two Roman imprisonments, but he's still in prison. He's not a free man. He's still under Roman guard. He's still under the authority of Rome. He can't just come and go as he pleases, which is why the saints came to visit him and minister to him. He's in prison. He's under Roman soldiers. And he's addressing problems in the churches based on what is brought to his attention. Philemon. He hears about Colossians. He addresses problems in Ephesians. And he addresses problems in Laodicea, of which we know nothing because that letter is lost. And the ever-devoted pastor is in anguish over those who are his flock. And this anguish uh, that he endures in prison under Roman God would daunt any man, not Paul. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Paul was not enduring conditions that, or rather Paul was enduring conditions that most who do everything to avoid. But not only endured them, he did so with joy. Paul was not joyful because of his sufferings. That's masochistic. Paul wasn't saying, let me suffer more, so my joy could be more. That is not what Paul is saying. He's rejoicing in the midst of his suffering. And that's what we've been going through through James, right? It's when suffering comes, when crowds come, when things happen to us of which we have no control, and suddenly we baffled at the way it happens, we still rejoice. Not because we want to suffer more, but we rejoice knowing this, that the one whom we serve will take us into the suffering and take us through the suffering and bring us out in his time, in his way. And through all of that, we rejoice. He rejoiced in the midst of suffering. He rejoiced in his sufferings for the sake of the believers at Colossae. It was for their sake that he rejoiced, because he knew as he was suffering... He was now also able to, to, to converse with them. If Paul wasn't there, now this is hypothetical and a little bit of sanctification, uh, sanctified, uh, hypothetical thinking here. If Paul wasn't in prison, maybe he would never written the letter to, 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 to Colossae. Think of that. That letter is, is really one of the prison epistles that were written while Paul had time to write in the, in the jail at Rome. 
So suffering sometimes to us uh, is overbearing, but God has a purpose in the sufferings he takes his people through. And in their sufferings, we can join. He rejoiced in his sufferings for the sake of the believers at Colossae and for the sake of the rest of the church, the body of Jesus Christ. One commentator says it in this way, he regarded his sufferings as what any servant of Christ could expect in view of the world's treatment of his master. The world treated Christ that way, therefore we should expect him to treat us that way because we are his disciples. If they hated me, he says, they will hate you. If they despised him, they will despise us. And so as we go about doing what Paul has given us an example to do, remember Paul says, be an example of me as I'm an example of Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. As we do that, as we evangelize the lost, not in the Roman Empire, but in the greater Cape Town, we will be despised and we will suffer. But in all of that suffering, there is joy because you do it not for ourselves, but for the church and for those who will be added to the church. Paul received a unique function to fulfill in the body of Christ. He ministered the gospel of reconciliation to unevangelized Gentiles primarily. And here in verse 24, he explained his ministry to his readers so they could appreciate the reconciling work of God more deeply. And he did so in order to stimulate them to press on to maturity, which will be developed later on in this chapter, add further into the epistle. So what do we take away from this this morning? How do we take what Paul has said here about himself in relation to his suffering as it reflects uh, a development from Christ's suffering? What do we take away with us? Well, perhaps Paul himself can give us encouragement from another prison epistle. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, he writes... But whatever gain I counted as lost for the sake of Christ, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish and count them as dung, and count them as manure, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that, become, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of, from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may, obtain, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul's commitment to the gospel was the result of his total devotion to Christ. And that commitment and devotion came at a huge price. If you want to be saved and become part of the church of Jesus Christ because you want a better car, a bigger house, nicer clothes, more money, you're doing the wrong thing. Do something else. This is not what it's about. Being joined to Christ is being joined to a life of suffering. That commitment of devotion and, uh, that Paul had came at a huge price. Sacrifice of personal comfort Safety and self-gratification, totally sold out for Christ. And Paul reminds us that we too can participate in this level of evangelism and living for Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.3, Paul writes this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, with the comfort that 
with which he, we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. And so Paul takes us through that verse, or, or, or uh, writes that verse, a verse which has caused great consternation to many in the church because it made a wrong connection to the suffering of Christ. And I trust this morning, as we preach through this verse, we realize that it's there for a reason. Once we recognize the suffering of Christ correctly, we are encouraged and um, commanded to do the same as Paul did and to be devoted to him, serve him, suffer for him, so we could share in his sufferings and his comfort too. Let us pray. Father, we are mindful of the fact that without your word, we'll be without a plan, a guide, or light in this world. It's because of your word that we have in our hands and can be implanted in our hearts that we're able to live for you in a way that honors and glorifies you. We thank you for the example left by those who have gone before of what it means to live for Christ and to walk with Christ and to be sold out for Christ. We pray may grant us the same grace as we live before you day by day in his name and for his sake alone. Amen.